Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and with James Titko. And this week we're talking about the so-called scientific reproducibility crisis. An alarming sounding study was released earlier this year that concluded that less than one third of breast cancer research papers had reproducible results. So what are the consequences and who's to blame? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Over 70% of researchers have failed to reproduce another scientist's experiments and over half have failed to reproduce some of their own experimental results. So are these statistics as worrying as they sound? And what are the reasons behind such a lack of reproducible results? To introduce the topic, from the University of Bristol, Marcus Manafo is with us. He's the chair of the UK Reproducibility Network, which describes itself as a national peer-led consortium that aims to ensure the UK retains its place as a centre for world-leading research. Marcus, welcome to the programme. First of all, what does reproducibility actually mean in a scientific context and why is it so important? In this context, reproducibility means that if you were to run an experiment again, you would get the same results, basically. So one foundation of science, if you like, is that if the findings that we generate are robust, then if we were to run the same experiment again, we should get the same results, more or less. Now, that's not always going to be true. There will be random variation in what we measure. So any single failure to reproduce or replicate the results of a single previous experiment doesn't in and of itself mean that that previous finding was false. But by and large, if the results that we're generating are robust, then they should be replicable, reproducible across different experiments or the same experiment rather, but done by different people at different times in different labs or in the same lab again at a different time. And we've been quoting in the build up to this back half, the statistic that 70 percent of researchers have failed to produce, reproduce other scientists' experiments. How did all this come to light? Surely when this came to light, there was some sort of big response Well, one of the problems is that this is one of those things that people who do research, who are in academic departments, know about, but hadn't until relatively recently been looked at systematically. So I had that experience myself when I was doing my PhD. I tried to replicate a finding from the published literature you would think was absolutely robust, and I failed to do so. 
And that made me think, well, maybe I did something wrong. But I was lucky enough to be reassured by a senior academic, oh, well, actually, that finding is notoriously flaky. Lots of people have that same problem. So it's only relatively recently that people have started to look at this systematically. So a few years ago in psychology, for example, there was the reproducibility project psychology that attempted to reproduce 100 studies drawn effectively at random from three major psychology journals, and they found that only about 40% of those findings could be reproduced. And that empirical approach to estimate the proportion of research findings that are robust, that can be reproduced, replicated, um, has now been extended to other fields, and we find very similar results across a range of different disciplines. And Marcus, is this a problem across all sectors of science, or are there particular hotspots? Well, we can't say for certain because we've not looked everywhere, but certainly it seems to be perhaps ironically, a fairly reproducible finding where people have looked empirically in fields ranging from psychology through to cancer biology through to economics. That general figure of about 40% of findings being um, reproducible seems to um, seems to pan out. But we haven't looked everywhere. There are, I think, examples of fields that have gone further ahead on this journey, if you like, in terms of changing how they do things to ensure the robustness of the findings they generate. So in Genetics, for example, there was a a period where candidate gene studies, where you look at a single genetic variant in a single gene to see whether it's associated with some outcome, some phenotype. Those studies were notoriously unreliable. But then we moved into the era of genome-wide association studies, where you look across the whole genome in very large sample sizes, typically across multi-center consortia, with very strict statistical standards for claiming discovery, and those findings are very robust. So there are certain fields where we can learn from those lessons and see whether they can be applied more broadly. But in general, I think that this is a relatively universal problem because actually the drivers of this problem are to do with the sorts of things that incentivize the ways in which scientists work, for example. So statistically, how often should this happen, in your opinion? Well, this is one of the really difficult questions because we don't really know what the optimal rate of reproducibility should be, if you like. So on the one hand, you would want findings to be robust enough so that if someone else were to run the same experiment, they would get the same findings. On the other hand, we need to push the boundaries of knowledge. We need to take risks. We need to do a certain amount of blue sky research where the the findings are not certain. So I don't think it would be optimal for the the rate of reproducible findings to be 100%, for example. And it's not clear what that that optimal value is. My personal feeling is that where it seems to be at the moment is probably too low, that we could do better than that in terms of ensuring the upfront quality of the research findings that we generate. But there perhaps needs to be just a piece of work done or a bit of thought put into exactly what that optimal trade-off is. I suppose when I first heard the number of studies that were having difficulties with being reproduced, it made me a bit more concerned than if I don't, if you don't mind me saying, Marcus, and it sounds like you are. Are we guilty here in the media of, of sensationalising this a bit? Is, is it really a reproducibility crisis? Because it seems like less severe than perhaps I would have first anticipated. Well, don't get me wrong. I think there are real reasons to be concerned. And I think there are lots of ways in which we can improve the ways in which we work and the environment within which we work, which is, I think, part of the issue that the culture that generates the research that we produce has room for improvement, if you like. But I'm not a fan of the crisis narrative for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I think it's potentially a little bit hyperbolic. I think it it sort of overstates the nature of the problem more than the extent of it. And I think it implies that it's a recent phenomenon and that if we fix it, we can walk away from it and 
we don't need to worry about it again. I think the issues are actually deeper than that. And what we need to do is think about more fundamentally how science has changed and whether or not many of the ways in which we do science, communicate science, need to be updated. And think about how we can move into a mode where we're constantly reflecting on how we work and whether or not there is room for improvement. And evidencing that through research on how we do research, meta-research if you like, so that we can always be improving the quality of what we produce by thinking about the ways in which we work and how we produce it. So I do think there are problems. I think there are many things that we can do better and we need to be putting more effort into thinking about embedding those ways of doing things better and evidencing whether or not they have the impact that we intend. But I'm not sure calling it a crisis is particularly helpful because I think that can just be a bit distracting. Marcus Manafo, thank you very much. So the word crisis might be a bit of an exaggeration, but is this still nevertheless very important to understand the effects that reproducibility or lack of it can have on science-led sectors like medicine? And Tim Errington, who's from the Centre for Open Science in Virginia, has led an initiative to explore the reproducibility of studies on cancer, the results of which he's published in the journal eLife. Tim, welcome to the programme. Tell us first of all, just briefly, what you did during that project to assess cancer reproducibility. So we started this project eight years ago, and the way that we decided to go about testing it was to make sure that we could first start with the original papers. So identifying all the information that we could, trying to work with those original authors to understand exactly the way the original research was done. And then we worked with independent researchers from those labs to see if they could conduct it again. The key there was just trying to make sure that we could have no reason beforehand that we wouldn't get the exact same results. And we did that over, I said, like eight years, looking at a variety of different papers that were published in cancer biology. So how did you choose those papers? Were those ones that were judged to be really seminal in the field or the kinds of papers that really direct or drive a field in a certain direction are therefore sort of linchpin findings that everyone else is hanging research on? Is that the sort of paper you chose? Or was it just a random selection of we'll test this, test this, test this and get someone else to see if they could effectively follow the same recipe to the same result? So the approach we took here was to to look at, you know, using that word impact, being careful there, which is really what you were just getting at. What were the papers, the findings when we started this that were making and getting the most attention in the research literature, right? So who were people reading? Who were they downloading and citing the, the, the findings? And, and ideally building on, right? We When we started it, these papers were just published, but we were hunting for ones that were getting the most attention because we thought exactly what you were saying that, well, let's look at these ones because they're the ones that are going to have the broadest implications that will presumably drive those fields, those subfields forward. So let's see how um, reproducible they are. And when you did that, what was the result? How many of those really high impact or important field driving publications did you manage to, with your independent teams, reproduce the same results from? Looking at like a variety of measures, it was definitely less than half. It's sub 50% that we found. And so that's that in itself, I think, is an interesting thing to look at, just the number. What I think is more interesting is also some tidbits in there about what that means. So two big aspects we found was it was really hard to understand transparency of those findings, right? Not the data wasn't always shared. Methods, right? Those methodology details were were lacking. Even with talking to the authors, we couldn't always figure this out. And the materials, those reagents that were used weren't always easily available. We couldn't get them from uh, anywhere. So that was one part, which it was a hard process to even attempt to do it. And then the second one was when we found it, yeah, we found less than half could reproduce on a variety of measures. But I think the one that sticks out to me more is 
is that effect size, right? The, the practical significance of those findings. So compared to those original outcomes, our replications were 85% smaller on average. And so, right, a large effect size means that it's going to have a practical significance, especially in the cancer biology space, versus the smaller effect size that we're finding, which kind of suggests that maybe there's not a practical application for it. This is not about finger pointing, of course, but different scientists are trained different ways with different motivations in different parts of the world. Did you test that or did you look at just one country's science when you were doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. We did not look at a country science. Like the approach we took was just what was being uh, published in the literature, what was getting that attention. So the original papers that we had uh, were largely based in North America and uh, Western Europe, to be honest, but findings uh, from labs all over. We didn't tease apart this aspect. There are other projects that are trying to do that, look at just a single country and ask, well, how does that look if we just look at a, a single country's output? Mm, I mean, I was was wondering whether some countries where scientists are actively incentivized publish a paper in a top-tier journal and you get a year's pay on top of your normal salary, for example. I'm, I'm aware. I mean, people have told me that that is the case, for example, in China, where the bonuses are huge if you publish in big journals. There's therefore a, a, an incentive to make sure that your science punches way above its weight, which could lead to some people exaggerating claims, etc. Um, what are the implications of this? I mean, if it's in the cancer field and you have got results which are 85% better than they should do, just let's say, does this mean then that, that people are potentially being misled about the validity of clinical treatments if they take what someone says they've found and it can't be reproduced? I'll answer that two ways. Yes and no, right? So all these early findings do definitely find their way out into uh, the media, into the news, into social media, as well as blog posts and everything. It gets outside beyond the science sphere, right? And we know that that can impact behavior and policy, right? We as researchers might find the most interesting study that tells us uh, alcohol consumption does X, Y, Z in terms of my cancer prediction, right? And so I might curb my behavior or maybe red wine is good for me. So now I curb my behavior the other way. So I think it first can directly impact the individual themselves, right? I can I could potentially change my behavior. It does obviously even impact um, at the care level, right? We know that a lot of these findings, especially when they're ones that are looking at diagnostic markers, for example, can find their way into treating patients, right? That there are doctors and clinicians that will actually take that evidence and move right with it, rightly so, as they should. But the problem is, right, if it's not going to stand or we don't really understand how reproducible it is, that might mislead them by accident. And then I think the last thing, if we really think about where all of this research is going, is we're hoping it can find its way out into the public to actually make an impact. And this can actually slow that pipeline down, right, as we try to move findings up into eventually trying to get out into the public and be some type of intervention or drug or treatment that can actually help improve lives. And just on that point, if you're a company and you're buying rights and patents to exploit a technology or a finding, does this mean potentially your, you and your shareholders are being misled? Yes and no, right? I think what, I, I think what I'm seeing and hearing, um, and it's worth, this is anecdotal, what I'm getting at is there's hesitancy in terms of what we publish. In light of these findings and other ones, it's too good to be true. And that maybe you should just wait a little bit and get evidence from somebody else so that you don't get tricked the way that you just said. I think there's more hesitancy towards taking this and moving it rapidly into uh, application. So curb your enthusiasm sometimes. Tim, thanks very much. That's Tim Errington.
It's the Naked Scientists with me, James Titko, and with Chris Smith. And this week, we've been looking at reproducibility in science. Why do 70% of scientists say they couldn't get the same results when they copied what someone else claimed to have done? Indeed, what is causing this to occur? Well, according to Danny Kingsley from the Executive Committee of Open Access Australasia, the structure of academia, as well as the pressure on scientists to either publish or perish, is responsible, as she explains to Will Tingle. Publishing is papers is ostensibly about communicating your research to say, I did some research and I found something out and this is what I found out. But in reality, the need to publish papers is something that researchers have to do for their careers. So if you can demonstrate that you've done some research in a particular area and that people thought it was important enough to write about it elsewhere, then you're more likely to get a grant than somebody who says, I'm interested in doing this research, but I can't demonstrate that I've ever done any research before in the past. And does the need to publish skew the types of papers that end up being produced? Yes, it does in a couple of ways. So one is there's a pure need for volume. In Australia, there used to be a system which just counted the number of papers that you published. And what was happening in that environment was that the number of papers increased dramatically. And the way that that worked was I might do some research. And so what I do is write four papers based on that research, just taking slightly different angles on the research outcomes that I've, I've done rather than writing one. The other way is that need to try and publish in a journal that has a high journal impact factor. So fancy pants journals like Nature or Science that people may have heard of, they have very high impact factors. And so they're quite prestigious journals to publish in. So it's very um, competitive to publish in those journals. People will try and publish. uh, The the submission rate is much higher than the publication rate. So those sorts of journals have a very high rejection rate. Sometimes 95% of the uh, articles that get submitted to those journals are rejected. So that means then that there is an imperative for people who want to get published in those sorts of journals to have novel results. So results that are surprising, for example. And that unfortunately can mean that there are some poor practices on behalf of the, the people writing the work to make their results seem more novel. And sometimes it's fairly benign. It might be simply, oh, that's a bit of an outlier. I won't mention that outlier because it actually makes it look slightly less interesting or less novel. But there are other times where it can be uh, more problematic, which is things like what is called harking, which is hypothesizing after the results are known. So instead of saying, I am seeking to find an answer to this question, do my results, look at the data and say, yes, that question was um, was validated or no, it, it proved not to be true. Instead, I do the research, look at the data and say, actually, I'm going to say that my question was this other thing because then I can demonstrate with this data that I was I was right with my hypothesis. And it's worth noting that retractions of papers, so when somebody finds there's a problem with a paper and it gets retracted from the record, they tend to happen more often in high-profile journals than they do in smaller journals, possibly because there are more eyeballs on those journals, but also quite probably because there is this need for novelty. And so the that kind of poor practice is potentially more likely with papers that are submitted to those journals in the hope that they get published. So putting all of this together then, how do these factors all mean that there is a lack of reproducibility? 
So reproducibility is complex. It's very difficult to reproduce exactly the same uh, circumstances in exactly the same environment. So it's not surprising that there are situations where you can't exactly reproduce the outcomes, particularly if you're talking about studies that involve humans or animals, because they are obviously going to differ slightly each time. The lack of reproducibility is uh, to do with sort of things like the size of the study and those sorts of issues. But the reason why we're not doing a lot of reproducibility, we're not reproducing work to ensure that it is valid, is because that would not get rewarded because it has already been published. So there is no value in reproducing. There's also a risk in trying to reproduce somebody's work. If you try and reproduce it and and are unable to, you've got to call it then and say, Professor Jones's work doesn't stand up and if you are a subordinate to professor jones that could be what shall we say career limiting and science is hard with all the best intention in the world you could attempt to reproduce someone's study but the sheer nebulous amount of parameters involved in every experiment means that something was different that was out of your control it might be that there's a stack of magazines on the machine and that's affected something it might be something that you don't even realize is affecting the the outcome of your results that you haven't put into your methods because you don't think it's relevant but turns out to be relevant. Is there need for a better communication of methodology? Because sometimes scientists try and replicate work, but they weren't given the full instructions. Yeah, there is actually. It's quite interesting. There's a couple of journals now which are video journals and you video the experimentation process. So that is an ability then for you to see the environment you're in. So it does give a different view, literally, of how the experiment was undertaken. So that does allow a different way of communicating. It does, of course, mean that that involves a different way of setting yourself up when you're doing your research process and also the process of editing that and sending it off for publication or in inverted commas. So there is extra steps associated with that. And of course, that then means that's time away from you writing papers that are going to get you the reward. So there is something of a selflessness of the people who are experimenting with this type of thing. But as we make it more normal, then we're going to end up with a better result, literally for them and for us all in our society in terms of better use of funds of our research, because that often is taxpayer money, and also better outcomes for the research process. We do not wish to alarm people, but how widespread would you say that this problem is? There are many, many papers that are not reproducible, but for many of the reasons that we are talking about today, But the issue of deliberate fraud and their reproducibility because somebody has done the wrong thing deliberately is very, very minor. We need to understand that science isn't by its nature, is questioning itself. It's never finished. So any outcome, any result needs to be built on by others than reproducing some of that work or taking that idea and building it into something else. So we are always questioning the results in science. That is a normal thing to do. But what we don't want to be doing is questioning the endeavour of science itself. Danny Kingsley. So what can we do about it? Well, Will also spoke with biochemist Andrew Holding, who's at the University of York and has himself had run-ins with irreproducible science from other people that took him, in fact, a whole postdoc to sort out. Will spoke to him about the short and long-term solutions that could help scientists to move towards a more open and reproducible method of research and publication. And the main win I see for science in general in challenging reproducibility is as more and more biology research becomes computationally based, so these are these technologies like genomics, proteomics, many words that end with omics, they use a lot of mathematical methods. And what we can do for things like that is we can publish the code and the data so someone can literally download that 
and run it on their computer. And that is a massive win for science because that means the person can reproduce the data analysis in an afternoon, maybe a bit longer if it's a little bit challenging to run the code. And then you can see how the thing works. Because to me, part of the science is the code. And that's a really quick win. If we normalize that behavior, we can then have people building on that science. We can grow science quicker instead of this idea that we have to keep it hidden and safe in case someone finds a mistake in it. Because most people aren't producing irreproducible science on purpose. And I think letting people make mistakes and letting people see the workings and so how you got your answer is a huge plus. And I don't think there's any harm in saying, look, we've been pushing people's papers, their research look like 10 out of 10 results. Let's, let's just relax and say, this is pretty convincing. And then people can honestly show the weakness to their work too. And that is a cultural change, which given the competition in science, it's slow to happen, but it is happening. And certainly on the computational work, the things I mentioned about people giving their code, that's changing a lot more rapidly because that's quite a new field. And there's a lot more willingness to try new things where I think the momentum in the sort of wet lab, the experimental and established techniques is you're trying to change something that's been like that for 50 years. And that's a lot harder, but people are still coming going, yeah, no, I see the benefits of this. So they're, those small wins are saying, look, let's put aside the absolutely fraudulent people which is probably the absolute minority of the problem, and look at the genuine mistakes made by honest scientists who want to get the best science. How can we make it so if they make one of those mistakes, the next paper says, you know what, I think this, and builds on it. And that standing on the work that came before you, that's science, not presenting a beautifully polished piece of work that meets a set of criteria that we sort of made for ourselves that don't really exist. And if we want to shift towards a more open access attitude towards research, is there anything that we can do to prevent institutions from just piggybacking on each other's research? This is something you see quite a lot of people saying, oh, if I publish my data open access, if I publish my source code open access, someone can just go and run my code and tweak a few parameters and get a paper out. And I'm like, great. And I think that's an attitude change. So you've got to say, yes, people will piggyback on you. And what we can do is say, look, if someone's piggybacking, if someone sees your results and because they have better funding than another country and they can get ahead of you, that we don't see that as a bad thing. We see that as something like this person did something so good, they generated a new field, they generated a new direction of science, and they don't feel that they're going to be vulnerable because of that. And that's something where sometimes because the way grant funding works and the way it is competitive, that people do feel vulnerable to someone getting ahead. In my experience, though, usually people who take what you've done and run with it run in a different direction. It's very rare that someone has exactly the same idea of you, exactly the same data, especially if you're the person who came up with it. And the benefits of being open and sharing and people expanding what you're working on for you over the risks, I think mean we should embrace this. But that small concern that maybe you'll not have the next grant because someone's scooped you, as we call it, I think we can do better protections to recognise that that is a vulnerability and make people feel more secure. But I, I think the benefits still massively outweigh that risk. And so to look longer term, how can we therefore ensure that academics have the environment they need to feel safe producing their work? I mean, this is a really complicated one. You know, we've got the funding environment as it is, and then we're looking forward to how we do that in the future. And at the moment, science is funded quite often, certainly for the smaller research groups with short-term grants, very competitive, very low success rates, 
somewhere between one and 10% on quite a lot of these funding bodies. What you need to do is say, right, we can fund more science. We can support these people more. And we're not just going to go for people who have the biggest and flashiest science that we fund. We fund people for being consistent and reliable. And how we measure that, those metrics, I'm not going to give you an answer for today because I don't think we know what the metrics are yet because metrics of measuring how good science are is such a challenge. But what I can say is if we decide we want to change the metrics, we've got the people to can do it. You know, scientists spend their lives analyzing data. And if we can't work out how to work out how to get the outcome we want from science funding, then we're asking the wrong people, to be honest, because we should be able to do it. To finish off, the last thing we want to do is undermine all the vital research that is done and is beneficial to all of us by scientific research. So do you see this as a crisis or more as an opportunity? I think it's absolutely an opportunity. If we were to ignore it, stick our heads into the sand, it would become a crisis because people would lose faith and people would lose trust in it. What I am seeing, what I said is most of these issues are things that have gone wrong because of people making genuine mistakes. If they publish the real data, then people can correct that. And that's how science has always worked. We know plenty of stages in the history of science. There have been competing ideas. Sometimes they've gone backwards, sometimes they've gone forwards. But eventually we come up with a model that we build on. And so this is just another evolution of that ongoing scientific process. So I think this is a massive opportunity to say, look, we can do science better. We've seen the challenges and identify using those skills we have as a scientific community, where to put the best resources to get the best outcome for everyone who is investing in us as scientists. So that could be charities, that can be governments, and they can then see better results and a more diverse set of results that don't just focus on trying to get there first to get the biggest splash in the newspapers to get the next pot of cash. Thank you very much there to Andrew Holding. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got this alarming statistic about the number of scientific papers that future researchers are having trouble reproducing because of a variety of reasons, perhaps a lack of communication of what's been done in the paper, inability to source the right equipment, the odd bad apple who's committing scientific fraud. But then, as Andrew was pointing out, there is some cause for encouragement. And as I personally speak to more and more researchers, the overwhelming sense I get from scientists is their eagerness to self-critique, to evaluate their methods and ultimately to improve. Chris? I also think there's a strong element of it being a communication problem. We must be better at communicating to each other what we've done, how we've done it, why we did it and what we found. There we must leave it. But do join us at the same time next week. It's going to be a Q&A show. We're going to be giving you the opportunity to get your science questions answered. An astronomer, an archaeologist, a physicist and a global health expert will be here with us to answer what you send us to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.